0: I'll forever be branded as a preacher who played with balloons in church. But I trust you don't forget the lesson. I invite you to turn to our theme song, Pressing on the Upper Way, unless you know it off by heart. And if you were here last night, you know uh, what I'm expecting. Some of you were here last night. I didn't make it real clear, did I? <laughs> there you go. Effort, pressing on. And let's sing the words with meaning and understanding again. I'm pressing on
1: the upward way, new heights I'm every day, still praying as I'm onward bound, Lord plant my feet on higher ground. Where doubts arise and fears dismay no some may dwell where, where these, these abound My prayer, my aim is higher, is higher.
0: Rolled into one. I'd like to preface the service, the sermon, the service tonight by giving you a little bit of the background as to how I ever wound up here this evening. And I don't do this because I think my life is so far unique or totally unusual, but I do it in order to illustrate where I believe the Lord wants us to go for a message. Back in the early 1970s, there was a Mennonite deacon who was in a hospital doing personal work. Now, do you know what personal work is?
1: Witnessing for the
0: Lord. Witnessing for the Lord. It's not a phrase we use a whole lot anymore, is it? That's what he was doing. He was just simply in the hospital looking for people to witness to. And as he was going through the hospital, he was crossing a children's ward in order to get somewhere else. And these are words from his own mouth. As he was crossing that ward, he was about to exit it, And he he heard a voice telling him, turn around and go back. He said, it was just like an audible voice. Now that man had a choice to make at that point. He was on the children's ward. He was looking for people to witness to. He didn't believe in child evangelism. But he turned around. And he started back the way he had just come. And the Spirit directed him, not that door, not that door, this door. And he went into that room, and lo and behold, there lay an adult man in bed on the children's ward. And he started to witness to him, and as they conversed, he discovered that this man was estranged from his wife. She wanted a divorce. He wanted to try to make it work. And he begged this brother, he said, will you go, this was a hospital in the Kitchener-Waterloo area of Ontario. Important point, i admit it. He said, will you go to Perry Sound and find my wife and talk to her and see if we can't work this out. With some hesitation, grave hesitation, the brother said, okay, I'll do that. And then he had to go home and get a map out to find where Perryson actually was. And true to his word, not too long thereafter, all by himself in the middle of a cold spell, he towed a little tiny trailer up with him, which he stayed in one night and just about froze to death. He went up to find this woman and see if he couldn't help to work some reconciliation. He found the home. And what he found in that home moved him to the point, well, he later described that home as a hell hole because of the immorality, the partying, just the total absence of any sort of semblance of moral fabric. That home was the home of my Todd grandparents that woman was my aunt that he was looking for. Now, my mom and dad got divorced. I told you the other night, my mother got pregnant before she was married, and they went ahead and they got married. Two wrongs never make a right. It didn't work. It didn't last. They were divorced before I was old enough to know who my biological father was. And my mother had started living common law with another man. But the conditions that brother found in that home moved him so much that he had a desire to go back there and share more of the gospel with them. And so very shortly thereafter, he took another man with him. And they went back to Perry Sound. And they found that doors were open. People were willing to hear. And so pretty soon gospel teams started going up. They'd take a carload of people, take some young people along, and they'd sing. And they'd read the Bible. And I can recall as a fairly young boy, these people coming into our home and listening to them sing. And they always looked so happy. I, I, I would use the expression angelic, but I don't want to give undue glory to the saints of God, but yeah, that's kind of what they were. Over the course of time, they decided that they'd start a mission work up in Perry Sound, And this brother moved there with his family to start the work. And as a livelihood, he started a barging service. And it wasn't too long after they were there, they had sand on the barge one night, or one afternoon. And their three-year-old boy was playing on this pile of sand, and nobody knows for sure what happened, but somehow he, he slipped over the side and he drowned. Very, very tragic. My mother had some contact with the mission prior to this. But it was that initial coming face to face with death. This poor little innocent boy died. He drowned. Death doesn't always wait to you old person. It made her realize that it could come at any time for her. And she knew she wasn't prepared. And it was pivotal in her getting saved. Now I have two younger brothers and after she got saved, the very first thing I really knew that mom was getting saved was the fact I was losing my dad because that common-law man she was living with was my, my dad as far as I was concerned. He was the one who did things with us. Um, uh, there was quite a confused period in my life there. I didn't know for sure what was going on because I went to that funeral, I do remember his funeral and I remember being introduced to some grandparents. I had no idea they existed. Well, they were the Todd grandparents. That's the little I had to do. See, my mom was a Jones. And I don't know where that saying, keeping up with the Joneses comes from, but for them, it was true. They were good, honest, hardworking people, salt of the earth. My grandparents had a big hand in helping to raise us when we were younger. My grandfather was a devout Roman Catholic and he took me to Mass every Sunday. I was going through catechism, I was ready for confirmation, I was ready for my first communion when all of this took place, and I moved out of a Catholic setting into an Anabaptist one. Yeah, as an infant, I was baptized in the Catholic Church. And just to be safe, my father's side was united, I got christened in the United Church, and then later on, I got re-baptized upon my own confession of faith. So if water does any good for you, I've had plenty of it in my life. Water's only symbolic. It's only an outward expression of what's happened inside. But yes, I claim an Anabaptist faith. There's a time when my grandparents would have stood and watched me burn at the stake because I converted to the Anabaptist faith from, from the Catholic Church. I'm glad to say that didn't happen. And it's provided some very unique opportunities for me over the years. Both my grandfather and my grandmother passed away within six weeks of each other. I have had the privilege of preaching in the Catholic Church twice. And I thank God for that. Back to the story. Mom got saved. We moved north. And so from about the age of eight, thereabouts, and the reason we moved to be in the mission was they were starting a school. And they told one. Move here and you can send your boys to our school. So I went from public school setting into a Christian day school setting along with entering Anabaptist teaching at church. I heard truth. It wasn't hard for me to believe in God. The Catholics had instilled a, a reverent fear of God. When you go into a Catholic church, but they were a very devout Roman Catholic. There was a water basin full of holy water. You blessed yourself. You went in. You were dead silent. There was a reverence inside of those churches. I think sometimes it helped it rubbed off a little bit on us. I know that the church here is the the members. We are the church. But still sometimes we lose a little bit of the awe and respect and wonder we should have, when we're approaching Almighty God. We're here to worship Him. It's not about us. It's about Him. And therefore it makes it easy for me, although I'd rather be casually dressed. I'd rather be in jeans. But I wear a suit respect for God so I sat in church I sat through revival messages I saw people 12 13 14 responding and giving their hearts to God I saw some of them do it because they felt the spirit moving them I saw others doing it out of peer pressure mom and dad kind of expected it and they didn't. They didn't live changed lives. And for some stubborn reason, I've got a stubborn streak as broad as a mule can have. I was determined I am not going to make a commitment till I can do it with my whole heart. And I recall sitting in revival services, holding onto the bench because the spirit was tugging at my heartstrings, and I wasn't going to respond yet. I wasn't willing. I wasn't yielded. I was 16 years old before I finally gave my heart to Christ. I almost didn't go to church that night. I tell you, the devil knows what your weakness is. He prays upon it. He he, he is the most unfair enemy there ever is. But I praise God that his spirit is stronger. And when I made that commitment, it was genuine. And I wish I could tell you that everything's been roses ever since and here I am. But you know that's not life, right? Life's a journey and uh... I got older wasn't too long after I was saved actually I was at the youth meetings in Indiana and God led me to Glenda, my wife. I can say that with absolute certainty. We don't have enough time tonight to go through everything, and on Saturday night I don't want to keep this concise. So you, s- oh, but you get an extra hour of sleep, right? Can we set the back now? God led me. I have absolutely, and he he just blessed me in ways I couldn't imagine. Coming from a non anabaptist background, I had absolutely no friend shot inside of those circles. Glenda's to everybody. I, I found she's got a. Second and a half cousin here, you know, it's awesome. It's just, but you know what? I value the connection we have even closer than that. You're all brothers and sisters in the Lord to me. And that is so amazing. I can come and feel right at home here. And I thank you. I've been able to feel your spirits and I feel kindred spirits. God bless you for that. So we got married. It was a while until God blessed us with our first child, but he gave us Four. We have a girl, which most of you know, Erica, she was secretary last year at MBS here. We have a son, Kirk, that's uh, a couple years behind her. Then we have a couple younger ones. But after we were married, about 10 years down the road, there was an ordination at our church. We went through all the preparatory stuff, went the night of nominations, gave the nominations, and we, we nominated a fine brother in the church, felt would do a good job in the role, and went home, got ready to go to bed, the phone rang. It was a bishop. I said, Tom, you've been nominated along with someone else. Are you willing to be interviewed? And you could have literally knocked me over the feather at that point. I was, I'm sure I was ashen-faced. I, I'm not sure if my hand was steady enough to get that phone back on the hook or not. And I wanted to be. I I think I mumbled affirmative because it came the next day and we went through the interview process and we did go through that ordination. But I want to tell you something. It was a lot and I was not chosen. And I was cool with that because I supported the brother who was chosen. That was fine. I knew it wasn't supposed to be me. In fact, I was pretty sure all the way through that this was some sort of a mistake. But you know... there were things that happened in my life earlier that I know was God directly speak to me and I just put them away in the back, I pushed them away and God was trying to place His call upon my life. See I had a plan mapped out for Tom Todd's life I came from, my mother may have been of good upbringing my father's side was definitely from the wrong side of the tracks And mom had a very, very tough life, because she was spoiled. She did things the way she wanted to do them. She raised us alone then, and it wasn't easy. I mean, growing up, we not only had patches, we had patches on patches. We didn't care, we had clothes. But through that, somewhere inside of me got this determination to just simply succeed. I wasn't out there to become a multimillionaire. I just wanted to succeed. So I determined early on that someday down the road, I am going to be my own boss. That's about where it was at, being my own boss. And I headed down that path. And that's the path I was on when this ordination came along. And afterwards, in reflection, I, I could feel the Spirit nudging me and I started asking, Lord, why couldn't you use me? And you know what? God is such a loving Father. If He had taken me literally and given me the answer, He would have just crushed me. Because there were so many things, it would have destroyed me. But like a loving Father, He just started pointing out areas of my life, one at a time. And as He pointed them out, I had to decide whether I would submit them or not. And I'll tell you, God still uses you as he works with you. It's not it's not a cut and dry thing. Four years later, there was another ordination in our church. Another lot situation. And once again we were in the lot. And this time God called us. But he was still working on me because I still had my desires. And I'm not telling you that desires are wrong. It is good to have goals and that in life But this whole dream of me being my own boss was way overboard for me. God had to get me broken to the point. I was going to start my own business. The fellow I was working for caught wind of it. He came to me and said, Tom, stick with me 10 years. He said, I'll give you a certain portion of the business after 10 years, you can buy me out. In the meantime, he built a big house on the water. He said, oh, I gotta work another five years. Well, we had more than doubled the company in size. And I thought, okay, yeah, it still makes sense. Stuck with them that. And then it was 16 years. And then it was 17 years. And all through this time, God's been working on me. And finally I get to the point where I realize God is telling me I'm not supposed to do this. Like I told you, thick skull, stubborn as a mule. But I got there. And I can... I can remember when I finally got to the point where I said, okay, Lord, okay, okay. I'm hearing you. I know. And I was walking out. My, my contract ran until April of each year. And in February of that year, I would have told you, I don't know what I'm doing come the end of April, but I'm done. I'm, I'm Wherever the Lord leads me, I'm going. And it got really scary because the moment I gave that up, The Lord switched things around 180 degrees. And I got scared. I got really scared. Because I said, Lord, I know you told me. And I put put fleeces out there. Let me tell you something. You cannot put a fleece out to challenge God, okay? Particularly if it says something in His Word. and God will not honor that at all. But if you really don't know which way to go. And you say, Lord, if this is the door you want me to go through. Make this happen. Make this clear. He will do that. He will do that. He has done that time and again for me in my life. There was two, I call them small miracles, that I put in front of the Lord, and He answered them both in a positive way. So we carried on. Now people will ask me, do you own your business? And I tell them, no. It's the Lord's. And it doesn't come easily, believe me. Because there's still desires within me. We wanted to grow it here recently, and once again I've heard God say no. I don't know if he's saying no for good or if he's saying wait. But I can do that. I can do that because I trust him. Because I know what is best for me is what he's putting in front of me. God has a plan and a purpose for every life. And I just thank God that he doesn't give up right away. He keeps working on us. He is the greatest father there is. Now, let me back up a step. I'm here. God has called me to minister. What would have happened if that man walking through that hospital had just kept on going? It's a question I'm glad I don't have to find the answer to. But I somehow have this sensation, this fear that I wouldn't be here tonight if he hadn't. One man's listening to the Spirit, more fruit. Who knows where it'll go down the road in the future? This evening, I want to challenge you. I'm going to invite you to turn to John chapter 1. Are you a Christian this evening? Not ashamed of it? Are you a Christian? Yeah, all right. Now, do you know tonight? that when you're a Christian, you've got a family name. You know, I can start naming, I, I can say Todd, or I can say Screef Seth, or Sensing, or whatever I want. we the whole list here. And when I do that, you're going to start getting a picture in your mind, right? You're going to think of certain family traits there that are kind of unique, things that stick out, things you appreciate, things you don't appreciate. But I want to tell you something. Tonight, if you're a Christian, you have taken on the family name of Christ. And you know that verse from Acts 1? Where Jesus was leaving this earth, and he tells the disciples, Go and wait. He says in verse 8, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. And somehow we read that verse and we think it applied to those disciples who had to go out there and carry on the mission of Christ. But I don't want to tell you, anyone. Who receives the name of Christ, is part of the family, has the Holy Spirit's power, is a witness. Do you agree with me? Now the only option is, are you a good one or are you a bad one? Ouch. Ah, Jesus says, I'll make you fishers of men. Let me tell you something about fishing. I like to fish. And I know I can waste a lot of time going out fishing casually. And by that I mean, oh, i got an hour here, let's go fishing. Throw a line in a muddy old creek, it's only a foot deep. No bait on the hook. Am I successful? (laughs) No. But yet that's often what we do in our Christian walk of life. We think, well, we'll do the master's work and we'll do his, and just kind of haphazardly, casually, wherever it fits in, whenever we get the urge to do it, we'll do it. And we wonder, we wonder why we're not effective. Do you want to be a good witness for Christ? I know what our hearts are do, right? We do. But let me tell you something, it's going to take effort. And the devil's going to tell you it's too hard. He's going to tell you that's what missionaries are for, that's what preachers are for. You don't have the qualifications to get out there and be a... Light on the hill, a visible balloon that's got something to it that attracts people. Like moths to light. Why is it? Why is it? Do you know, a survey was done by Barna Research, which does surveys in Christian circles. And they took a survey here in North America, And it revealed that only 2% who call themselves Christian share their faith on a regular basis with others. 2%. Oh, we're all thinking, shame, shame. Oh, hold it here. I'm going to hold our feet to the fire bit this evening. When's the last time I verbally witnessed for Christ? You know, I'll show them. I'll live different. I'll live this separated non-conformed life. I'll never do anything wrong. I'll always set a good example in my business practices. And I'll always love and be there and ready. No, brothers and sisters, when's the last time you verbally said something for your Lord? I'm not going to ask you to reply to that. Why don't I? Why don't I? I'll tell you what. I haven't got a clear picture of what God is really expecting here. What is the dearest thing to God? God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. I couldn't quite grasp some of these concepts I see in Scripture until I became a father. When it says that God is not willing that any should perish, what he is saying is that he is not willing that anyone perishes. Not one soul is not supposed to perish. Now, we have a tradition in the Todd family Because in the summertime I work some fairly long hours in construction, we have had the practice that dad always tucks the children into bed. It gives me a chance to connect with each one of them. We can chat, I listen to their prayers, I tuck them in, and yeah, some of them have got to the point now where that doesn't happen anymore, but this goes back a few years. Uh, About ten years to be exact. Our youngest was two years old, and I was out at a board meeting. I had left early that morning before they were up. Got home, um, got changed off to the board meeting without really connecting with anybody, come home. And they were already all in bed, my wife included. But I would still go through and just talk the children in. And if one of them was awake, the opportunity to connect with them. And I went from the oldest to the next one to the third one to the fourth one's bed. And when I got there, he wasn't in bed. Now just, this was in the middle of winter. And I don't know why, parents, you'll, you'll be able to identify here, but your mind starts to do funny things. Just recently in the news, there had been an account of somebody out west here who had a two-year-old child that managed to get the door open and wandered out into the cold and froze to death before they found him. And for some reason, that immediately came into my mind. Now, this young fellow was in the habit of crawling into one of his siblings' beds. He wasn't supposed to. He was supposed to be in his own bed. But I, I thought, okay, so he's, he's in one of those beds. And I went back, and I did the check, and he wasn't there. And I can remember this thought starting to prey upon me. And my heart started to accelerate, and I, I went upstairs to check our bed because he was never supposed to be in there, but sometimes... Yeah, let's face it. The youngest one tends to get a little bit swelled And uh, they somehow slip under the radar. He wasn't there. And brothers and sisters, I want to tell you something. At no point did I ever stop and say, Tom, what are you doing? You've got three children. They're safe and secure. They're in their beds. You know where they are. Don't worry about the other one. God is not willing. Though there's a hundred sheep, and ninety-nine of them are safe in the fold, yet He'll still go out and search for that one. Why? Because it's His child. He's created all of us. Do you realize how much God loves every soul here on this earth? Can you begin to get an appreciation? Tom? If you oh let, let me back up a step. I told you the other night I'll die for my wife in a heartbeat, and yet I still sometimes have to go ask her for forgiveness. I will. I will die for her. I'll die for any one of my children. There are people, brothers and sisters, who I gladly lay my life down for too. I believe I'm ready to go. If it came to that, I will do it. Now somebody said, Tom, over here in... I don't know what your biggest city is that would have a, a skid row or whatever. Up in Minneapolis. There's this drug addict. He's had no hope. He is, he is heading for a Christless eternity. But if I am willing to die for him, there's a chance. He can, he can get to heaven. I hope that I could do that. I think I could. I, I, I think I could have that sort of a love that I would just, yeah, I'm ready to go. I'll lay down my life. But now somebody said, Tom, Tom, that same person, same conditions, apply. But instead of you laying down your life, you're going to have to give one of your children. Now, I've got four of them. But I can tell you right now, I don't think I could do it. I don't think I could do it. And yet, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son you begin to grasp how important it is to God that people get saved. The people don't wind up in a hell that he never created for them because it was created for the devil and his angels. And it's unfortunate, it's really unfortunate, that humans are going along. God calls you and I to be his witness. And in order to keep this really simple, we're going to take a look at a Bible account. I'm going to give you three simple steps. I'm not going to say they're all easy, but they're simple. John chapter 1, we're going to break in at verse 35. And it says, again the next day after John stood. It's talking about John the Baptist, and it's a day after he had baptized Jesus so, verse 35 again, the next day after, John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and said unto them, What seek ye? And they said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? And he saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt, bowed with him that day, for it was about the ninth, the tenth hour. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. We'll cease reading there. May the Lord bless this portion of his word. Now, I want to give you three steps. They're not original with me, but I'll tell you once I discovered them, it made it a whole lot easier to witness. Let's look at what happened here in this portion. The very first step, and you're going to say I'm oversimplifying things, but brothers and sisters, this is the most important step. You need to have a genuine, personal encounter with Jesus Christ. You have to follow Him. Verse 37, yes. it says, once John the Baptist pointed him out, it says, and they followed Jesus. Now, without this, you have absolutely no basis. Do you know what it's like to reach out and truly touch the Master? Have you made a connection? You're not just brushing up against Jesus. You're not just following through something. You're not living hypocritically. You, criti- critically, <clears throat> you... are genuine through and through. I want to tell you something. Brother Warren pointed out the other night, I don't stand behind the pulpit. When I first got ordained, I stood here prim and proper, and I tried to preach like preachers I admired, and I struggled. I really struggled. And I'm not saying you can drive deals with God. But I was, I told the Lord, I'm willing for you to use me. But I said, I can't be something I'm not. I can't be hypocritical. I said, if you want to use me, I've got to be me. And so I'm me. And so I trip over words and I move around. And Brothers and sisters, I'm not saying it's easy, but I try to be genuine. What you see is who I am. I don't want to put on airs. I don't want you to think something of me that I'm not. Of course I want you to think the best of me. We'll get to that here in just a minute. You need to have a genuine encounter with Jesus. And now that doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect. Like I'm trying to tell you, I'm not perfect. You don't have to be to be a good witness, okay? In fact, it's better if you're not perfect. It's better if you know you're a sinner saved by grace and you remember those roots and you can go to people and you can put your arm around them and you can genuinely say, hey, I know what you're going through. I've been there and here is what God did for me. You need to be genuine. There was a lady who went to visit one of her friends. She drove 50 miles. Not thinking on the women. This is the account. She had her visit, and it came time to go home. She discovered she had locked the keys in the car. This was before the advent of cell phones. There was such a day, young folks. So she goes into the house, calls her husband, says, Honey, I've locked the keys in the car, and of course, he grumps like we men would. And then, oh, you do that, well, instead of getting like, I'll, I'll just drive my keys down to you. So she hangs up and she goes back out to the car, and she discovers the passenger rear door is open. So she goes flying back into the house, and this is where it would have been handy to have that cell phone. She tries to call him, but he's already left. And her friend looks at her with some amusement. She says, You know what? When he gets here, he's not going to be very happy. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do? So I'm going to do what any red-blooded American woman would do, she opened open the door, push the lock down, and shut the door. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason you laugh is because we identify, right? That's what we do. We want people to think the best of us. We, we, we put up facades. We, it's pretty easy to live a lie so that people don't really know who I truly am. You need to be genuine. First, have that encounter. Second simply find someone and tell them, okay? The finding part's not hard, the telling part here is. A simple step, a little bit hard. Verse 41 Andrew goes, finds his own brother and says, we have found the Messiah to Christ. And it can be that easy it doesn't have to be some foreigner in a faraway land. We'd all rather go in the mission field where nobody knows us and we'll just preach the word and you know what's harder is to witness to the person next to you, to the relative in your family that you know isn't right with the Lord, to the neighbor who is having problems, to that clerk down there at the store, or that salesman that walks in. You know, those are the people that are hard, but they're plentiful, they're there, and we need to be able to share with them. Oh, Brother Tom. That's easy for you to say. You know, I bet you, you can get out there and just tell them according to God's word exactly. Hold it. I'm going to tell you, the telling part is a lot simpler than what you have been led to believe because the devil will tell you it's too complicated. All you have to do is share a word, not a sermon. Our youngest boy, second youngest boy, loved to sing. And Glenda was pushing him in the store one afternoon as she was getting groceries. And he's lustily singing away here in the store. He doesn't care who hears him. And uh, a woman stops and remarks about this young boy singing. You know how wonderful it is. And he just innocently looks up in her face and says, You know Jesus loves you. <laughs> well I said she was speechless she she, she stammered Well, yes I guess he does (laughs) and I don't know what that bore but you know it told that woman in a heartbeat why this little boy was singing leave it with God you don't have to God never ever asks about your ability or your inability what God is asking for is your availability will you work for him Will you be his witness? Ah, here's another key. Don't, don't try to preach a sermon. You know, sometimes we take our Bibles and we beat on people. They're living in sin. Maybe they're in adultery. Maybe they're homosexual. Is that you go up to and say, God disapproves of your lifestyle. You've got to get saved. I'm not saying it's wrong to tell people they're sinning. But you know what is more effective? It's like I told you earlier. When they see that I'm a sinner who's been saved by grace. And if I can testify to what the Lord has done. Yeah, we're out of time. John chapter 9. There's an account of this blind man who was blind from birth. Jesus comes along. He makes mud. He puts it on his eyes. He says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And he does so, and he gets his sight. Now all the contact he's had with Jesus is that Jesus has said, go wash. And his sight is received. But there was a problem. The religious leaders of the land immediately took notice. Two reasons. It was Jesus who did it, who they hated. And the second problem was, it was done on the Sabbath. It was done on the wrong day. And so they dragged this man into the synagogue and they start to interrogate him. They said, you were never blind. He said, yeah, I was blind. And then they drag his folks in and they start to interrogate them and they they got all scared. They knew that if they confessed anything about Jesus, they'd get kicked out of the synagogue. And so finally they go to this man and they say just give God the glory and say he's a sinner. And do you remember what that man said? Because it's awesome. He said whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But this one thing I do know whereas I was blind, And they kicked him out of the synagogue. Jesus finds him. And he says, let me tell you something. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to have theology all nailed down. You don't have to be able to answer all the questions. All you need to know is that where you were blind, now you see and you're willing to tell people that. You're willing to say, yes, I was blind. And now I see. Jesus meets him and he says, do you believe that Jesus is a Christ? and he says, who is he, Lord, that I can believe in him? And Jesus says, it's a person that's talking to you right now. And he looked at Jesus, he said, Lord, I believe. Jesus will do that. Jesus will continue to reveal himself to you when you're his witness, when you're his child, when you're doing what he needs you to do. But you know what? We're pretty cautious. We, oh, there's this verse in the Bible about not casting your pearls before the swine, Right? We tend to, this is a precious faith we have here. We don't want it trampled in the mud. We're going to be really, we make judgments about people. We decide who's going to be open before we ever open our mouth. We, are you with me here? We pick targets. There's a story about a psychiatrist, a doctor, and an engineer. They went hunting way up north, Canada there. They were bear hunting, got lost in the woods, started to snow. They were half frozen to death, lost, didn't know where they were. If they hadn't stumbled across the trap cabin, they probably would have died. Knocked on the door, nobody home. Doors unlocked, go inside. There in a corner, on a crude platform, waist high, sits a stove. Well, they immediately rush over to that and they fire the thing up and they huddle around it for warmth. And they start looking at this. And the psychiatrist says right away, he says, Oh, well, this is easy to explain. This man has been way isolated for too long. And he's starting to go, whoo-hoo. And the engineer says, no, it's an ingenious form of forced air heating here. He, he's got this up there. He's got a convection. And, and the doctor says, no, no, hold it. The man probably has arthritis, and it's too hard for him to bend over and feed a fire. So he's got it in So he just shoveled it in. And right about that time, the trapper comes in. And so the men thank him for saving their lives by building this cabin out in the middle of nowhere. And then they immediately ask him, they say tell us, why did you put this stove in this wayside platform? It's looking look, at kind of like, they're funny. It's a little simple. My stovepipe is too short. <laughs> but it teaches us an important lesson. We, we, we tend to judge people by our perspective, by our background. We, we make those mental assessments. Let me tell you something. Just because the salesman comes all dressed up, you think maybe he's more receptive to the gospel than that man sitting every side of the road and there's Harley Davidson that's broken down, that biker with his full leathers on and his patches? Let me tell you something. You'll be surprised that biker may be more receptive. Never, ever judge. If God gives you the opportunity, take it. You have to have that encounter. You have to find somebody, which is not hard in the land that we live in. You have to be willing to talk to them and the last step is just as easy and if we understand this maybe it'll make step number two easier bring that person to meet Jesus you don't have to save anyone look at what happened in verse 42 what did Andrew do when he found Peter it says that he brought him to Jesus that's all we have to do see We don't have to do any saving. We don't have to do any convicting. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. That is God's job. What we need to do is put them in touch with God. Point them in the right direction. Show them where the answer lies. And let God do the heart change. Because we cannot scrub people up. And I've seen that happen. People try to help. You know, it becomes a social gospel. Let's get them cleaned up. Let's get them on the right path. Brothers and sisters, what they need is a heart change. And the only person can do that is Christ. They have to meet Jesus. Now... Who is the most important person? You look at Andrew. Is here bringing his brother Simon Peter. Oh, Peter. Peter. Oh, Peter, that great preacher who had thousands of souls saved when he preached the word. What about Andrew? What do you know about Andrew? Do you know anything about Andrew? I know if you go through the Gospel of Mark and you look for Andrew, every time you find him, he's bringing someone to Jesus. Here he brings Peter, who later becomes that great preacher for God. What if Andrew had never brought him? Later on, he brings a little boy and his lunch, and Jesus performs that miracle of feeding 5,000. Later on, he's bringing the Greeks to Jesus. Every time, Andrew is behind the scenes, but he's bringing others to Jesus. I don't know we get the glory. We may be surprised. His mansion may be a whole lot bigger than what Peter's is. And you know, Peter's supposed to be the gatekeeper and all that. He that is least in the kingdom of God is sometimes the greatest there may be some fairly big name preachers that have little cabins in the corner glad to have them that's up to God Jesus said in John chapter 9 verse 5 that as long as he was in the world he was the light of the world but before he left he said yous are going to be that light he said you're going to be a city set on a hill you're not supposed to try to hide It's one of the reasons why it's important that our faith is visible. We need to live our faith. You can't say you have faith and have it dead without works hidden away in your pocket. It is not effective. You have got to be visible. You have got to be willing to be that candle on a candlestick. But so often, brothers, and sisters, I know this because it's my... The enemy wants us to get that bushel and just put over top of the light so I can't escape. And as long as we're doing that, he leaves us alone. We're not a threat. We're not a danger. Do you want to be a witness for Christ this evening? Do you really want to start down that pathway? If you truly believe it's what God really expects of us, if you truly believe God doesn't want a single soul going to hell, if you can look at people around you and realize if they're not going to heaven, they're going to hell, it might loosen their tongues a bit. And you may say, well, my life is so busy. Let me tell you something. If you want to get serious about this, all you have to do is pray in the morning. Lord, give me an opportunity today to witness for you. I know this from personal experience. He'll give it to you. But let me warn you, the moment you make that commitment, the devil is there, he's all perked up and he's listening, and that opportunity will come at the most inopportune time. You will think, ah, yeah, there's an opportunity, I'll catch that later. Procrastination. And let me tell you something, that opportunity is forever lost. It will never come back again. You may get a further opportunity, you'll never get that opportunity again. So pray it, I challenge you, I would use the words dare, but that's not fitting for Christians. It's our duty to do this. Do you want to be a witness for Christ? Do you want to increase your witness? I invite you to turn to 193 in your Christian hymnal. I'm just going to invite you to sing this song as a a personal commitment to let your light shine for Christ where he has placed you. Now let me tell you something, God hasn't put us all in the same spot because he wants us spread out throughout our world because we're supposed to be salt on this earth. We're supposed to be the ones who keep this earth from judgment because the point will come when God can just not handle the earth and, and, and that will be it. God is, of course, the light. We are the lower lights. I invite you to stand as we sing this song. 193, let the lower lights be burning. Brightly
1: beams the Father's mercy From his life pass evermore, but to us he gives the keeping of the lights along the shore.